Hello and welcome to the next installment of the History Twins podcast. I'm Aidan Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. Today we are interviewing Professor Jonathan Schultz of George Mason University. Schultz's work encompasses economic history, experimental economics, and development economics. His recent article in Science Magazine, The Church, Intensive Kinship, and Global Psychological Variation, looks at the role of the Catholic Church in stimulating development in Western Europe and compares it to other uh, religious traditions. Professor Schultz, we'll begin with your recent article and continue with some of your related work. So could you explain the term marriage and family policy, or MFP, in the context of your recent science article? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So we termed the church MFP, the Church Marriage and Family Program, contains many different policies that the church implemented over a long time span. And the first uh, proscriptions were against Sororat and Leverat marriages, and these can already be found in the 4th century. So Sororat marriage means the marriage of a man with his wife's sister, and Leverat marriage is the marriage of a man with his brother's wife. And then later on, this church started banning um, cousin marriages, was in the 6th century. We find many synods in the Merovingian Empire and, and the Carolingian Empire. This is where it all started. And this law then was gradually expanded in the beginning of the 11th century. It was expanded up to the seventh degree, meaning no one was allowed to marry anyone where any relations were, were known uh, to a common, to the 128 common ancestors, to the 128 great, 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 great grandparents. Of course, it could never be enforced to this degree, but it just shows you how preoccupied or obsessed the area was with the ban of incest. When I talk about cousin marriage or, or incest, it's not just cousin marriage, it's also spiritual kin and affinal kin. So spiritual kin, godchildren and uh, godfathers were not allowed to marry. Affinal kin, I already mentioned Sororat and Leverat marriage, but this was also extending far out. So in essence, people were forced to marry um, people which were not in, in their immediate close circle. This is only part that church then went on uh, Part of this package of this marriage and family program, the MFP, was forbidding polygamy. It forbade divorce and remarriage. And for example, in polygamous societies, males who fail to produce an heir with their first wife then can marry a second wife. And of course, if you can't do that anymore, this all goes against uh, traditional families and, and lineage and kinship-based uh, um, societies. Because if you can't remarry, the likelihood that your lineage dies out if you don't have a hair, hair increases. Another policy which was going against the lineage was uh, adoption. The church took a strong stand against adoption. Um, and uh, when we look at the legal codes, we find that adoption only starts popping up again in the 19th century. For example, in England, laws organizing adoption was, were only reinstated in, in 1929. So, uh, perhaps one of the most convincing pieces of evidence for your theory that the church was obsessed with incest is the fraction of church councils which regularly discussed it. So, could you talk to us about what roughly what fraction of these church councils, like synods, were actually involved or discussed incest? So, unfortunately, not all the documents of these synods are uh, still available. Many are um, lost, but... Which the, the ones which are very good uh, preserved are the Merovingian synods. So starting in the year 506, the Synod of Exde, it was the first synod which started banning cousin marriage in what is now France. 
And then you get one synod after the other uh, synod uh, uh, banning cousin marriage. So out of 17 synods between the year 511 and uh, 627, 13 contain incest prohibition. So, so you see this was really at the forefront of this church in, in the Merovingian Gau. And um, it wasn't just the church. Also you find um, of these political secular rulers um, prohibitions against uh, cousin marriage and uh, incestuous marriages. How did these restrictions compare with earlier Roman norms of, of incestuous marriages? So it, it, we don't have so many uh, records about uh, the uh, Roman prohibitions, let's say, on cousin marriage. What we know is that um, the, the lineage or the, the patrilineage was strong in, in Roman times and you, you also see that adoptions were common in a way to preserve these lineages. And there is some evidence that during the Republican times um, there was, uh, were some norms against cousin marriage, but later on they were relaxed more and more. So why do you think the Catholic Church was so officially, at least, dedicated to eradicating incest despite its very common acceptance and prevalence in the early Middle Ages? That's a good question and there's many possible answers. So. Um, one thing where we have records is of, from St. Augustine, and St. Augustine is one of these church fathers living uh, around the time between the turn of the 4th and 5th century, and he took the stance that uh, cousin marriage is not good because it, uh, if you ban cousin marriage and if you marry outside the king group, then this enlarges the range of social relations and should thereby bind social life more effectively by involving a greater number of people in them. So this is really a sociological argument we also make in our article. So uh, St. Augustine said you should marry people outside your family because you, you basically expand your network, you get a more uh, diverse network. And probably there was this idea in some sense we want to build this um, Christian community. And I think one reason the church went against um, these traditional forms of marriage and, and kinship-based uh, norms is that it wanted power, it wanted to extend its power. And of course, if you have strong uh, lineages and tribes and clans opposing you, and often those lineages have ancestral gods, so they trace um, their, their, their lineage to some ancestral myth, so this is really ingrained in a lineage society, in a tribal society. Now, if you get rid of these lineages and these tribes, and then you also get rid of these ancestral gods, and this way you can expand your power. And one important thing is once this whole, um, this whole thing is underway, the church can make a lot of money from it. And that's the argument that Jack Goody, this anthropologist from England, made. Um, once you get rid of lineages, then often people start, would bequest their inheritance to the church and that would make the church very rich and powerful. And, and one more thing is, if you go back in time, it wasn't clear that the Catholic Church becomes this powerful organization and one reason why it might become so powerful, and, I mean, it was competing to many, uh, with the, towards many other religions, uh, the Roman religions, but also other Christian sects and, uh, sects and Basically, that tells you that maybe um, these incest prohibition made the church so successful in the end. So how effective was the Catholic Church in enforcing these incest prohibitions? Certainly, it seems at higher levels, nobles were often able to get around the restrictions. Take a look, for example, uh, the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, 
so in practice, wasn't it more of a way of acquiring funds for the Catholic Church, similar to indulgences, perhaps? I think at one point, yes, it was a way to, inc- uh, to acquire more funds. But this only started um, around uh, 1215 with the Fourth Lateral uh, Council, where uh, all these prohibitions were relaxed before the church was really strong in enforcing um, these these bans, also noble. So already in the 6th century, from early on, we find that the bishops go against kings who try to marry people in the forbidden degrees. For example, Clotar the, the I tried to marry uh, the wife of his grandnephew, I think, and um, the church was going against it. The bishops were going against it, and uh, this marriage uh, was uh, dissolved. Robert II of France also tried to marry, I think, his second cousin, and the church went against it, the pope went against it, and the marriage was dissolved. So this was the 10th century. William the Conqueror, just before conquering England, so he wasn't the conqueror yet, he married in the forbidden degrees, and he had to donate one or two monasteries to uh, to the church. So these are big donations, so this is not just a small um, fee. And only then, uh, later on in the 13th centuries, this becomes uh, relaxed. Of course, even if it were only a simple fee, it might be effective at discouraging such relationships, but uh, something of a tax on incest. Absolutely, yes. exactly. Something exactly, it would shift, but you see in the, in the beginning, before the 13th centuries, they were really strict. Marriage was a common way of ending conflict during the Middle Ages. Uh, historians often partly attribute the divided nature of Italy, for instance, to the presence of a at least nominally celibate pope dividing north and south. To what extent was the MFP politically destabilizing, as it greatly limited the opportunity to use marriage as a means of ending conflict? So, um, it's a question where maybe it's hard to give a straightforward answer. The way I think about this is, and it's also reflected in the policies of Charlemagne, Charlemagne was one of the forerunners in enforcing these marriage prohibitions. He forced noble people from from all parts of his uh, big empire, so from Saxony to marry people in in uh, down in Spain and in Barcelona. So in in within his empire, probably it has had a stabilizing effect. So he going against these lineages, uh, there was this clear aim of consolidating his power and getting rid of strong lineages then. Uh, mitigates conflict and also we know from uh, from research done in Africa that uh, lineage societies tend to propagate conflict now later on in Europe it's not uh, it, it might be stabilizing to some degree but as I said after the 13th century you get uh, these marriage prohibitions are relaxed for the nobility, so you get all these intermarriages. And there's a nice paper by, I forgot the name, by some MIT economist who shows that actually these intermarriages between nobles had a um, stabilizing effect and and, uh, mitigated conflict in Europe. Uh, So, so far we've largely focused on how the marriage and family policy affected European nobility during the Middle Ages. However, you argue that the marriage and family policy led to widespread societal changes, so we'll now broaden our scope a little. Uh, So how effective was the Catholic Church at reducing incest in Europe, given the extremely decentralized population? And roughly what fraction of its resources did it dedicate to ensuring marriages were not incestuous? So I would love to be able to give a number on on the resources, and of course it would be great to have some sources there. What I can say is that Many historians describe this as an obsession, so the church was obsessed, and, and it wasn't just the church, like I said, it was also the secular rulers like Charlemagne. 
And what they did is they used the whole arsenal they had at this point in time to, to go against incestuous marriages. So one is draconic punishment. Uh, one of the punishment was slavery, but also excommunication. Excommunication now might feel like, yeah, whatever. I mean, you're not allowed to go in the church anymore. But excommunication at this point in time could mean the death penalty, actually, because you were outlawed. People could just take your property. And if someone killed you, it, it, he wouldn't be prosecuted for it. So that's draconic punishment. And um, the... The other thing is the church was very smart. I mean, the, the church and the secular rulers, they knew that uh, their enforcement is limited. But what they did is they said, if it's an incestuous marriage, um, we will uh, take the property and give it to the relatives. Now, of course, the relatives know best about whether marriage is incestuous. So this gives a huge incentive to, to denounce. And um, there's many more, more ins instances or incentives where for, for de denouncing uh, these, these incestuous marriages. Um, for example, children were only legitimate if the people were, uh, the, the, the spouses were married. So if you want to give inheritance to your children, we had to make sure that you don't have an incestuous marriages. And there's many more policies, um, public marriages, premarital investigations by elders and priests and the well-known phrase of wedding ceremonies, if anyone has reasons why this couple cannot lawfully marry, should speak now or forever hold their peace, is most likely originated during this, this medieval times. So you would say, it would be fair to say then, that even though these restrictions seem like they could only be effectively applied, applied to nobles, the Catholic Church did develop ways of ensuring that they were pervasive, even down to a low level in society. Absolutely. And it's also important to keep in mind that Charlemagne started to build a parish church. This, this was quite unique. Other, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't have a parish church. Of course, once you have a parish church, you have a priest, enforcement come, becomes a lot easier. Uh, so roughly when did the nuclear family become the primary arrangement of families in Western Europe? To what extent did the Catholic Church's prohibitions on incest contribute to the rise of nuclear families in Western and Northern Europe? So I can't give you an exact date. Um, the, I, I can give you so, some hints uh, historically. So, for example, there's a property registry of the impartial abbey of Saint-Germain-de-Paix de, uh, de near Paris. And it, this dates from around 1825, and it shows that, um, that the presence of the nuclear family. So the, the, there's hardly any vertical integration, meaning there's not more than two generations of of a family living under one roof, and that's a clear indication that uh, the nuclear family is there. So this seems to be very early. And the next um, very important indication is uh, kinship terminology. So in Indo-Germanic languages have a kinship terminology which is very common among um, societies, ethnicities, which, uh, which have traditional kinship uh, systems, or so cousin marriage, uh, presence of lineage, and so on. And uh, this is characterized by denoting the mother's and the father's side differently. So your uncle on your mother's side would be called differently from the uncle on the father's side. And this was also prevalent in English, in German, in Scandinavian, but also in all the Slavic languages. And you see that once the church entered, about one or two centuries later, you, these kinship term, terminology shifts towards the terminology we have now, for example, in English, where the uncle on both mother's and father's side are called the same. And that's an indication 
that now the lineages are breaking up, that we have trace uh, descent bilateral. Bilateral descent means uh, people get a way more diverse, uh, diverse networks. And importantly, in our paper, we, are, we show that this, uh, with data from the ethnographic atlas, so this is an atlas which captures kinship uh, uh, institution, before industrialization, we show that exposure to the church had a strong impact. So if, the, if an ethnicity was exposed to the church, then this ethnicity um, is characterized by the, the nuclear family. So this was all happening before the uh, Industrial Revolution, before modernization. So historians tend to associate the Middle Ages with a severe lack of scientific and cultural progress due to, in part at least, by the efforts of the backwards-looking Catholic Church, hence the term Dark Ages, which is growing increasingly unpopular, but still commonly used. So how fair is this characterization, would you say? So, I mean, what's important to, to, uh, un to think or understand is that it's not like the church had this grand master plan. I think it, this just happened. So the church um, wanted to increase their power. That's why they were going against the extended families, lineages, tribes, and so on. And uh, by doing this, they then changed the psychology of people. The people became more individualistic. They became less obedient. So in a way, I would say, yes, they paved the way for the uh, Enlightenment and so on, but it wasn't their intention. And in a way, maybe the Catholic Church then fell victim to its own success. It had, uh, it had gotten rid of these kin networks. Suddenly, people are individualistic, and then they start creating their own religion, like Protestantism, or they start, um, well, becoming atheists because it's more in line with, with an individualistic nature. So. In a way, maybe, yes, the Catholic Church was backward-looking, but its action ultimately contributed to uh, the rise of Europe. So, do you think that if the Catholic Church was responsible for holding back progress? Sounds like you're somewhat skeptical of that claim, but if it was, wouldn't that greatly outweigh the benefits of any restrictions on incest, as you detail in your paper? Yeah, yes, so, so, so definitely. I mean, the I think the Industrial Revolution, for example, liberal democracy, these are all consequences of the action of the, the Catholic Church. Um, so if, if there was a hold back in, in other areas, ultimately in the long run, definitely uh, there's, there's lots of... Well, I, I wouldn't say benefits, it's, it's just contributed to the uh, progress because, um, of course, once Europe and European countries became very powerful. They also did uh, massive uh, uh, atrocities, uh, you know, colonization of the world. But also now with uh, climate change and all that, that's also a consequence of industrial revolution, uh, in a way. So it's it's hard to say whether this is good or bad. It's just contributed to this this massive extension of uh, ideas, knowledge, and in the industrial revolution. So you associate the Catholic Church's prohibitions on incestuous marriage with greater individualism, less conformity, and more trust-slash-fairness towards strangers in the modern day. Yet during most of its long history, I would argue that the Catholic Church discouraged all of these, right? So a good Catholic placed the well-being of the Church above his own self-interest, certainly, conformed to and obeyed all the rules set by the Church, ideally without question, and distrusted-slash-mistreated strangers if they adhered to another faith. So could it be that the Catholic Church thus hurt Europe in the short run, but uh, helped it in the long run? Absolutely, yeah. That, that's exactly what I think. And also now, um, 
you see lots of uh, people in the church complaining that people become too individualistic that they don't adhere uh, and ob uh, abide by the law of God and of course the law of God in, in the view of the church is, is probably also in some way in their own interest and um, yeah so, so it's very ironic that the church seems to uh, go against the value it itself uh, created to, to some degree. Seems like a somewhat of a strange claim, right? Like if I were to say, like, I'm uh, beating you right now, but this is to encourage you not to beat people in the future. This doesn't seem like it would be a very good strategy, right? Don't you normally want to model the virtues that you're trying to teach and then people will adhere to those values rather than switch over completely in the future? Well, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, that's the thing. The church for sure wasn't aware of what, what's going to happen. It was... And, and, and to a large degree, it probably was just self-interest. It's, we want these bequests of these people. We want to get rid of these pagan traditions. We got, want to get rid of uh, the lineages. So, um, and, and funnily, already St. Aquinas, um, when was that, uh, still in the medieval times, was complaining that uh, maybe we should roll back on, on all these prohibitions because people are becoming too individualistic. So maybe they, they started realizing and then it was too late because the Protestant Reformation kicked in. Uh, so Europe during the Middle Ages experienced a number of demographic shocks, most notably the Black Plague. Uh, how did this change European society uh, in the relation to the taboo on incest? I think that's a super interesting question. I, I can't give you an answer. I think... One reason why I think it's very interesting is that other scholars have argued that pathogen stress or the prevalence of um, pathogens creates these strong kin-based institutions because, yeah, well, you want to stick to your family and not you know, interact with strangers become, because they can be contagious. Yet, uh, I didn't find any evidence for this happening in Europe that uh, the, the Black Death you know, kicks in and then people start marrying their cousins again. So it seems that the norm was strongly instilled. Um, I find the Black Death interesting for another reason, because ultimately our argument is about network structure. If you have a very diverse network structure, you get more individualistic people, but also people who trust strangers more. And uh, of course, uh, this massive event like the Black Death, where maybe a third of, of the people in, in Europe die, maybe, I mean, it's debated, but still it has a massive impact on, on the network structure, and not just the, the family networks, also the, the new network structures which were created in Europe, like the communal cities and so on. And so it would be very, interested, uh, it would be very interesting to uh, research that in more detail. But one thing, if you want to use the Black Death as an explanation of why Europe, I think the Black Death also hit the, the media, media, Middle East, so it's not clear why this in itself should contribute to the, the rise of Europe more though, so than in other regions, unless there was something different already. I mean, you, uh, it seems like the Black Death really could go either way in terms of incest. Like you could say, well, all my close relatives are dead, so I can't marry them, and then I've got to marry out of group, whereas if like, you could say, oh, well, everyone else is dead, I've only got my relatives left to marry, you could also see that scenario. So, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, yeah. definitely an interesting yeah. topic so, of research. Yeah. So, so you see what you were just explaining, you see this to some degree in 20th century Italy, after the World Wars or during the World Wars, cousin marriage goes up a little. So it seems that, yeah, in, in case of external um, threats or in case of scarcity of men, 
um, then uh, cousin marriage, if man becomes more valuable, it seems cousin marriage goes up. Yeah. Although even there, it's definitely not strong enough to get rid of norms regarding like brother-sister marriage, which seem super strongly ingrained. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then we'll compare the development and psychology of countries with differing religious attitudes towards incest to medieval Western Europe. Uh, so what psychological differences can we see between Western Europe and countries with historically different, uh, differing religious attitudes towards incestuous marriage, such as Iran, where Zoroastrianism, in fact, uh, prized consanguineous marriage? Yeah, that, that's very interesting. So Zoroastrianism so, so is, is hardly exists anymore, right? And might have to do with this promoting of incestuous marriage. Um, now, we are, now Iran is, is mostly Islamic. And in Islamic uh, societies, uh, cousin marriage—I shouldn't say Islamic societies—in in the Middle, e- Middle Eastern societies, cousin marriage is very prevalent. And not surprisingly, you f- find that people score a lot higher on on conformity, obedience, and less so on um, trust in strangers and uh, individualism, independence. What's interesting about the Middle East, and I think it doesn't have to do so much with religion. In fact, Islam. Was restricting polygyny to only have four wives, so there's already a, res- a restriction which uh, goes against a, a strong concentration. But what might have happened there is that you have a very tough environment. You have a camel herding, and camels have a very long reproduction cycle, so you can't split the camel herd. And, to, and there was a tradition of cousin marriage, um, but the camel herd itself would stay within one lineage. And now you have Islam coming in, and Islam. You could say it, it, it's it's quite progressive. Says that females have to inherit as well. And well, the solution then is if you don't want to split your camel herd, and but you have to give inheritance to your daughter, then you just marry your daughter to someone within your lineage, within your family. So then you can keep the property together, and that might give rise to this high cousin marriage rates in, in Islamic society, in the Middle Eastern societies. So, the world's earliest civilizations generally practiced incest, but also lasted for centuries and were extreme outliers in terms of wealth for the time. So, let's take Egypt, for example, where pharaohs were more or less expected to marry close relatives. So, would these ancient civilizations really have done much better had they eliminated such incestuous marriages, especially given their relative supremacy? So, I definitely think so. And... um... To give you a, the, the bigger picture is, in in, uh, in human history, hunter-gatherers didn't have these strong kinship and enhancing norms. Uh, so cousin marriage might have happened, but there was no norm for cousin marriage. These strong norms of of cousin marriage and also um, lineages, these creating this strong social cohesion, probably came about during the Neolithic transformation. Now you have property. Now you want to defend this property, and to defend this property you need strong groups, and you get groups fighting against each other with the rise of property, and that um, uh, and that leads to these kin-based institutions. So you have two forces. One is you get this new technology. Now you can, uh, by agriculture and animal uh, breeding, you can support a larger population. But at the same time, uh, these strong uh, networks create more authoritarianism and uh, and also hinder the, the this large scale ex- expansion, like ultimately the industrial revolution, which happened in the West. So ancient Egypt could definitely have done even better without incest. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and also, 
this is a real problem for uh, you know if you let's say you're the the sultan of the Ottoman Empire and you want to rule the people and now you're in a society which is based strongly on these lineages clans what are you supposed to do your power is actually very weak and what the, the, the Ottomans did they rested their power on Janissaries these were um, child these were slaves which were uh, adopted uh, uh, abducted uh, as children and that's where they they rested their power and often they were eunuchs so they couldn't start their own family so um, these rulers had to base their power on some third uh, third uh, people and of course they're not the only ones to rely on eunuchs for uh, political power yeah. obviously the the Chinese emperors did so as well exactly. to a great extent yeah. so it's a common theme it's it's you also get this in the Umayyad kingdom with the Mamluks so you need slaves on horses to build and expand your empire uh, so what were the greatest differences between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church had the great schism of 1054 never occurred would Eastern Europe strongly resemble Western Europe do you think so this this great Shiism, what we think of now, wasn't such great for, for great in the sense uh, people who were living around this time didn't think anything ch big changed. I think it's more that us we point to a specific date. So the differences between the Eastern and Western churches already emerged in the eighth ninth century, where where the Pope and the the Pope in Rome and the Emperor in um, in Constantinople start fighting. And interestingly, I mean, you mentioned North and South Italy earlier. Interestingly, for example, I think in the 8th century, the emperor in the Byzantine Empire put the South of Italy under the rule of the patriarch in, in, um, in, Byzant in Byzantium, Constantinople. And so, so this fighting was, was going on for, for long. And really, the, the strong incest prohibitions, and, uh, which then were supported by the church originate in in the Carolingian Empire. So this is the the, the, the originating region of, of these bands. So in, in a way, um, if uh, if the the Eastern Orthodox Church would have enforced these prohibitions to the same degree, yes, probably we would have uh, we might have even that the industrial revolutions have started somewhere completely different. And we definitely see higher rates of cousin marriage in Eastern Europe than in Western Europe, correct? And that's not the case. Oh, really? Um, in a way, uh, so so the, the big difference between the, the Eastern and Western Church was that for a long time the, in the Eastern Church, the, the cousin marriages were not enforced to the same degree. Later on, they were enforced. And the degree of cousin marriage so this extent to the seventh degree that's very unique to 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 Western Europe to the Western Church. This didn't happen in the Eastern Church. So if you would just look at cousin marriage, um, probably there would be uh, around zero um, in in Eastern countries. We don't have a lot of data for that. But what's different is you can have uh, you can have uh, these kin uh, these cohesion building kin based institution also along other dimensions, let's say the lineage. And if you look at the Balkans, for example, you still have the kin terms, which differentiate between the uncle on the mother's side and the uncle on the father's side. So you see that these uh, probably lineage and other aspects of kinship, um, kin-based institution are stronger. 
1453 fall of Constantinople sucked. Many Christian contemporaries, Pope Pius II, even advocated for a crusade to reconquer the lost city. The Muslim world seemed to many contemporaries a serious threat to Christendom. Do you think such a fear was warranted, or was Christian Europe destined to overtake the Muslim world given their vast differences in marriage norms? I think that um, I think it's a very interesting question, and of course it's, it's very hypothetical. I was thinking a lot that um, it seems Islam was really also in the 8th century, it was really on the go the, with the Umayyad expansion. And there, uh, at this point for sure, Europe was really a backwater. There wasn't much happening. I mean, already the kin networks started changing, but it, it didn't have any out countable outcomes, let's say, in organization rates or economic output. So I think there uh, it could have gone either way. Now, um, later on with the fall of, of Constantinople, uh, I'm not sure. At this point there, the key networks already uh, changed. And if you look at um, data on, on, on economic growth, um, people start dating back the, um, the increase in economic growth in Europe further and further. So I think around the year 1500, um, things already ch had changed in Europe. But of course, to some degree, Europe was also fragmented and it, it was, I mean, could have, yeah, it's, it's hard to say what would have happened then. What are the best counterexample countries to your thesis and how do you explain their psychological variation? What do you mean counterexample? You know, countries which one would seem, which would seem to do well despite having high rates of cousin marriage or other incestuous mm. marriage or countries which do poorly despite having low right. rates of. So, I mean, we talked a lot about um, about the church and how the church uh, changed kin uh, networks. But of course, there's variation independent of the church. So the church is not the only cause for variation in kin networks. And I would say that what I looked at, the, this relation between kin networks and psychological outcome, but also democracy, seems to be quite universal. But the variation can come from different sources. So, so I already uh, said that countries or regions which went through the Neolithic transformation, which rely, and, and also areas which rely on irrigation a lot or animal breeding, irrigation needs a lot of investment. Normally this brings about strong kin networks. Um, also animal breeding, it's movable property, so it can be even easily stolen. This also tends to increase kin-based uh, kin, uh, kin institution or kinship intensity. It increases cousin marriage. And there, it seems to, people, people seem to be more conformist, more obedient. But then you have areas in the world which did not go through the Neolithic transformation or which, um, which don't have uh, these strong kinship building institutions. Uh, what comes to my mind is, for example, Thailand uh, and, and so on. And there it seems those countries, uh, in those countries, people are a, a bit more individualistic and, and less obedient and, and so on. So then the variation could just be explained by the fact there are other forces besides the Catholic Church influencing incest norms. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, one interesting example now is, is China, and I'm very interested how that evolves. China starts starts could even think they they put the, the church marriage and family program on steroids they implement the one child policy which totally uh, goes against the traditional forms of marriage and kinship building institutions then they also have banning on cousin marriage south korea another country which is doing very well has uh, bans on cousin marriage so you see those countries which are doing quite well now with gdp also have 
which predate this, this doing well on GDP, uh, some form of on restrictions of who you are allowed to marry. And then we'll shift focus to some more hypothetical and counterfactual questions. So in what year would you have believed that Europe was greatly going to surpass the rest of the world? Certainly even as late as 1400, it would not have seemed so clear that Europe would do so. Well, absolutely. If you look at the data, then in 1400, you, don't, you still don't see it at first sight. But if you look deeper, you already see in the year 1400, you have all these communal cities popping up. And what's important about these commune cities is, so these are commune cities, mean self-governed cities, is that, um, well, it's people who cooperate ac according to their interest and not according to family lines. And the, the commune city is, is just one expression of this changing structure of the European societies. Then you have monasteries. Monasteries are, are the same thing. It's people coming together according to a shared interest and not according to family lines. You get universities popping up. Same thing. It's not a kin-based institution. It's an institution based on common interest interest on, on curiosity and so on. So you already see these foundations uh, laid in, in the year 1400. So uh, just going back to that, I would feel like perhaps the European discovery of the New World would normally get cited is when you can take a good look in, at Europe and say, all right, now it's going to do very well because it's just discovered a super uh, populous land mass which seems like they got a technological advantage over all the people living there and therefore they can conquer all of that and incorporate that into their empires. Well, so, absolutely, yeah. so, so do you think, let's say, hypothetical China gets to the new world first, is China going to be doing better? Or is it really like Europe has this unique ability to absorb the new world? So, so here's the interesting thing is, so my, my, my take would be China wouldn't go to, to the US because they, they would be focused on, on tradition. Um, there wouldn't be this curiosity to, you know, to, to do science, to, to be curious. It needs a degree of individualism. It also needs a great degree of disobedience. Um, if you look at the work of Joel Mokir, he often makes the argument that, uh, and many others, that uh, if you look at science, let's say in, in Islam, it was often the scientists were checking uh, about uh, uh, traditional um, tra traditional writings, and they're checking what wasn't with a these writings were true from a scientific perspective. They were rather checking whether they were transmitted in a truthful way. So, so this is this this wasn't this um, you know this uh, mindset of discovery and so on. So, and many of innovations in the in the so China had many innovations and they were with regard to innovations often ahead of the time, but often these innovations didn't spread in society. And of course, that also has to do with network structure. If I'm very traditional and obedient, I'm not adopting new technologies. So China encouraged the wrong values for discovery. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas Catholic Europe did not. So what do you think about Max Weber's thesis that the Protestant work ethic was largely responsible for the success of Europe as a whole? So this is probably controversial, but I think... Um, there's an underlying, well, when he did his, so, so Weber actually was talking about uh, kin networks and he said one precondition for this, uh, the industrial revolution and for, for many uh, other things which happen in Europe is the dissolution of these kin networks, but he didn't venture into detail. My take on this is uh, Protestantism is an outcome of these people who are now more individualistic, they're more in an entrepreneurial mind, uh, 
or, or spirit. So this traditional Catholic Church is not the right religion for them anymore. So they start and, and come up with, with their own new, new religion. So and while Martin Luther um, you know, had the idea and, and put his thesis on, on, on in Wittenberg on the church door, um, I think it, it might have been just a matter of, of time that you know some other person at some other in some other space would would come up and try to change aspects of Catholicism. Yeah, to me, this is an interesting question, just because you can take a look at the leaders of the Protestant Reformation at its inception, men like Calvin or Luther, and to me, they just seem like the most bigoted, horrible men you could imagine. <laughs> Even far worse than the Catholic Church officials at the time, you know, men like Charles V or the Pope, they're mostly just trying to keep peace and order. They're trying to prevent this from happening, and then there are fire and blood preachers like Luther calling for a radical transformation of society, and that very predictably leads to bloodbaths and so on. So to me, it just seems like they're harming society greatly, certainly in the short term. And then in the long term, these effects are pretty hard to tell, I would say. What we can definitely tell is that Protestant European nations do seem to generally grow wealthier and more powerful than Catholic counterparts would seem relatively similar. But in the short run, I'd say it's pretty clear that their effects are horrible. Are you in agreement with that? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. So this, I guess, then comes also in discussing the psychology of a person like uh, Martin Luther. I, and um, I think it probably needs a very spe specific character to go against the uh, existing orthodoxy. Um, but what you also see after, you know, after he, he comes out with his thesis, you get all these uprisings. So this tells you that already something's going on in the society with people being discontent. So I don't think that, I think there's, there's, there's many bad things that Luther has said and done. Um, but I think there probably was something underneath the, the, the society already uh, waiting to, to, um, to yeah. show up. Um, and of course, change, uh, if power structures change, then you always... There's always a risk, and there's all, always uh, things being destroyed. To what extent did the various Protestant sects emerging out of the Protestant Reformation keep up the MFP or something like it in subsequent decades? So Martin Luther was actually arguing against it, uh, against these these church prohibitions. He said, "No, we need to look at the Bible, and the Bible there's there's nothing about cousin marriage is forbidden. So go on, people, marry your cousin. You should." be able to have multiple wives nothing in the Bible says again says you're not allowed to but I think there's only one case where some noble guy had two wives and with Martin Luther saying okay you can have two wives that's the only case so uh, Protestantism did not revert back they just kept these marriage prohibitions of the church with cousin marriage for example, in Sweden, up till around 1850 or so, they, they for, Sweden is clearly a Protestant country and they forbade cousin marriage up to the year 1850. You have the same of all these Protestant uh, cities in the south of Germany. And I think um, up to around mid-18th century or so, you also find the, these pro Protestant prohibitions. And then they're loosened and you actually see that cousin marriage slightly goes up. So, so this is uh, Victorian England. People argue, well, cousin marriage goes up, but still cousin marriage goes up only very slightly. In, in, like for the aristocracy, it's around 4.5%. So it's, it's still very low. 
Do we see noticeable differences between countries like England, where Catholic doctrine was largely kept up for a good amount of time despite nominally going Protestant, versus countries like Germany, where the change is immediately quite rapid? It would be interesting to look at that. So in a way, if you look at Germany, it's very interesting because it's, it's not homogeneous, especially for up to the 1900. So you have the southwest of Germany, which has these church prohibitions since the 6th century, and then you have the northeast, Prussia, which only has these prohibitions, uh, parts of it in the 12th, maybe 11th, 12th century, so way later. These are 600 years. And you see that serfdom in Prussia is abolished way later. Um, and one of the, the one, one thing which is often said about Prussia is that people uh, are more obedient to law and, and order. And this might also reflect uh, the psychological variations within uh, in uh, Germany. And one thing about the Protestant Reformation, if you look right after Luther comes out, you get all these uprisings in the southwest of Germany. So it's the more individualistic people, probably. You don't get this so much in, in the areas which later turned out to be Protestant. And there it was a Protestantism top-down on, on the people by the nobility. So what's your best guess to as to if the Protestant Reformation had not occurred, would Europe have done better or not? I think the Protestant... Yeah, like I said, I don't think the Protestant Reformation is such a big event. It might have occurred at some other time. Maybe there would have been more, a more gradual shift within Catholicism towards a more individualistic liberal religion. But I don't think that Protestantism per se is such a big... We could tweak the hypothetical so that it's just any like big radical religious transformation that undermines the Catholic Church in Europe. Is that good or bad? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it also uh, depends on whether you look like uh, take a very bird's eye view. Um, for example, there's there's effects of the Protestant Reformation. For example, at universities, um, theology was the predominant teaching. Now Protestantism comes in, and and suddenly the teaching in university shifts to more uh, applied subjects. So away from theology, um, church property is uh, disappropriate. How you say disappropriated? Uh, so or, or um, Take, taken in by the secular rulers and and uh, put to new purpose, maybe to a more productive purpose. So there's all these effects of Protestantism, but I don't think Protestantism as a, a way of thinking, as, a, as an impact on... I think it's overrated. But of course there's all these effects, these other effects. Sasha Becker has a... Uh, uh, Sasha Becker and also Davide Cantoni has a paper where they show that this Mm, that there's many effects, which but which are not through the religion, really. It's more, more different channels. From a development perspective, then, do you think that the Catholic Church sort of had more or less political power? So that's the thing. If you talk about history, it's easy to say things now. And if you think about many societies today, which have these traditional kin networks, these traditional kin networks are a source of social security. It provides... Well, it provides uh, a backup in times of need. Now, for people in the medieval times, probably it was, was actually not such a nice thing to have a new religion coming in and dissolving these kin networks probably caused uh, quite uh, quite strong hardship on many people. Um, in the long run, yes, our GDP in the West is very high, living standards are very high and so on. 
But is this due to the Catholic Church losing political power or having high political power? So it, that's, that's another good point. Right? It, it also depends on when you think. So in the in the, in the beginning, that the, these these incest prohibitions were probably um, probably uh, you know a way to pave the way for for Europe on its special uh, path. But later on, um, the, the Catholic Church seems to be to be very uh, conservative and, and sort of a, a drain on society. I would go so far as to say that it's sufficiently corrupt and sufficiently uh, over trying to prevent uh, technological advances and so on that could actually be harming Europe. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know about the corruption. Yeah, I think corruption is also relative. Um, what I and this would be a nice thing for future research. If you look at the Catholic Church, you can also think, wow, this is an organization which has been around for 2,000 years. How many other organizations can say that for themselves? And it also seems because it wasn't a family firm because of the um, celibacy requirement. Um, it might be that the church was so successful. And now in our now modern societies, yes, it seems obviously very out of out of place and, and so on but this might have been also a factor which made the church as an institution successful um, yeah I, I don't I don't have a I don't have a strong stance whether it, it holds back um, uh, progress because then you have to in a way there must be a demand for religion otherwise the church wouldn't be there and then you have to ask yourself what what would uh, replace uh, this when in maybe in an ideal world uh, there would be just uh, rationality and logic and but but we're not living in this world so on to the theme of future research what will your next research focus beyond professor Soltz? yeah i, I just um i mentioned network structure uh, earlier and I, I want to do more uh, research on network structure so here it's kin network structure that we looked at, but of course there's many different network structures. And one thing we're looking at right now is network structures within the U.S. It also is, uh, we look at network structure, which are also to a large degree determined by families. And we can show that if the network structure, let's say at the county level is more diverse, then these counties also have more uh, patterns. And we're trying to establish a causal link that diversity leads to more patterns and the logic is very simple if you have people who carry more experiences from different backgrounds and you put them together then there's a higher chance of recombinations of these existing knowledge into new knowledge and then you get innovation and of course this is what only one aspect but there might be also other aspects for example um, uh, in-group bias are people who just hang out with like-minded people are more prone to in-group bias well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Soltz. If you enjoyed this episode of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. And together, together we are the History Twins. Incest. <laughs>